You are listening to Decoding Impact, a podcast by Sattva Knowledge Institute, hosted by Ratish Balakrishnan. Welcome to Season 2 of Decoding Impact. Every fortnight, we will engage leading thinkers and practitioners to understand what it takes to solve systemic problems at scale. For all the curious changemakers committed to understanding the trade-offs and incentives to make this world a better place, this one's for you. India is grappling with a severe mental health crisis. With over 197 million Indians diagnosed with mental disorders as of 2017, a wide treatment gap aggravates this further. The good news is that there is a growing recognition of the importance of mental health in the country. However, a thorough understanding of what it entails, what forms mental well-being, and how it should be approached and conceptualized is lacking. Mental well-being is intertwined with economic, cultural, social, and other factors at various stages of an individual's life. Effective interventions, therefore, should be contextualized to these aspects. How can public policy, market solutions, and community solutions be designed with these in mind? Joining us today to share her reflections on making mental health a key part of India's development agenda is Dr. Pratima Murthy. Dr. Murthy is the director of NIMHANS, where she has been pivotal in initiating Telemanas and establishing the -the state-of-the-art center for addiction. In over two decades of experience, she has held various consultant advisory roles. She has worked with the National Human Rights Commission to improve care for persons with mental illnesses, her expertise in the area of mental health and in shaping substance abuse prevention strategies, both in India and abroad, has helped in making a lasting impact on public health. Welcome, Dr. Murthy, for today's episode. Thank you very much for inviting me. Dr. Murthy, I want to start by setting the context in terms of why the issue of mental health is an incredibly important part of India's development agenda today. While there is growing recognition of the problem, it will be great if, from your expert perspective, if you can lay out what is the state of the sector today in some sense and why is this a critical issue for our discussion? I think we all need to understand how critical mental health is in a country's developmental agenda. Mental health actually affects all aspects of our lives. You mentioned some of those aspects, maybe the economic aspects, the cultural aspects, the social aspects. There are also biological aspects that influence one's mental health or one's proneness to illness. So I think it's very important to take cognizance of all of these elements when we are looking at mental health. So I think it's important to construe mental health as a spectrum from well-being, which involves not just physical well-being, but also mental well-being resilience. And then, of course, recognizing that there are times when we fall ill, just as we have a fever, just as we have a headache, it's possible to have psychological distress or a diagnosable mental disorder, which might need treatment. So being able to recognize that becomes very, very important. And for that, I think we also need to understand that this involves some kind of a process, which is quite different. For example, when we are young children, the kind of issues around mental health and mental illness may differ from when we are much older. But I think it's very important to understand that mental health and well-being underlies a huge amount of what 
social development is construed and of course that translates into a thriving community so i think that's why it's very important to pay attention to good mental health thank you for sharing that and i think the two things that i take back from what you just said uh, dr murthy is one the fact that this continuum is important to recognize that mental health is not just an illness question it starts from an issue of fitness in some form right what does your well being look like and the second is as you rightly highlighted the interconnectedness of mental health across various aspects that we are considering today today as you see where we are in india is there a recognition of both this interconnectedness and in terms of the spectrum across various stakeholders that are involved in the mental health uh, situation the best way to answer that is possibly a yes and a no i say yes because there are several policies in india which have looked we have a national mental health policy we have a national mental health care act we have a mental health program in more than 700 districts in the country but i think given that a significant amount of the population has a mental disorder perhaps the focus has been on identifying and treating such mental disorders or mental illnesses as we call them so much so that we have taken the spectrum of well-being and mental wellness a little for granted perhaps and i think the covid pandemic has taught us that when there is distress and distress can occur due to a variety of reasons there might be a temporary psychological distress when maybe we lose a relationship when we have some important life event happening when we have interpersonal difficulties when we have financial distress when we undergo any kind of disappointment we might be transiently low transiently depressed transiently dysfunctional not be able to sleep well lose our appetite etc so there are points like this where we might have the resources to overcome these ourselves with some simple strategies that we might take which is really called self help to being able to communicate such distress to others around us which means that we need to have a good social support in place so that we can turn to people and be able to speak to them about our mental distress just as i would say i have a headache i might be have the thing to say look i'm feeling anxious about this i'm feeling upset about this i'm not able to sleep over this and unfortunately i think there has generally been a stigma around talking about one's mental health and well-being because there is an assumption that we need to be in control of our mental state 100% of the time we don't do that about other bodily function so why should we do that only about our mind so really the focus on how can i for example have a reasonable amount of control over the way i think the way i feel the way i interact with my environment my interpersonal relationships how can i maintain a sense of calm or equanimity when that is disturbed what can i do to make sure i get help so that that distress doesn't translate into something more formidable that's very important but at the same time it's also very important to recognize that when i do feel upset for a prolonged period of time where my routines are disturbed for weeks on end that i know where to reach out to so that i can turn to somebody to help me to relieve that and 
then become functional again. So really recognizing those elements of it becomes very, very important. Beautifully said. One of the recurring themes that we discuss in this podcast is the issue of vocabulary and mental models. We say that we spend a lot of time discussing solutions, but sometimes the challenge is that the vocabulary to describe something and the mental model with which we approach a particular problem are very, very different. What you just told me is that, do I have the vocabulary to describe how I feel from the fact that I'm feeling well to I'm feeling anxious to I'm not feeling well and then there is a prolonged period of sadness? I think across people, for, for me to communicate to even my partner, for example, I'm not sure if it's consistent and uh, accessible for everyone. And as you rightly said, the mental model of how we approach mental well-being is also very different. It sort of seems like if I have a fever, it's not my problem. It's the problem of me being in the wrong circumstances. But if I'm feeling anxious, it's probably my problem because I'm not strong enough. And I think that there is a very strong articulation of whose fault is it in some sense when you look at it. I don't know if that resonates with you as well. Yeah, I think the primary place we begin with wrongly is about whose fault it is. In fact, on the contrary to what you said, even for headache, we probably take ownership more easily than for a feeling. Uh, so that's really one problem. And this vocabulary relates both to mental well-being as well as mental health. So, for example, I mentioned, you know, thoughts, feelings and emotions. It's equally important. For example, nowadays people are talking about this a lot. How can I be a little kinder on myself, be more accepting of some of my feelings, etc.? Take ownership of that. But at the same time, also realize that there are ways in which I can control my emotions to an extent that I learned from experience how to deal better with my environment. Now, we must also understand that our mental makeup depends on a whole host of things. One is, of course, a biological predisposition with what we are born. I mean, just as we have certain thresholds in terms of our blood pressures or body weight, for example, there's a biological tendency for some of these things. Similarly, a large part of temperament is something that might be inherited. Our sensitivity, our temperaments, there is a certain biological component to that. But that doesn't mean that we cannot regulate it or cannot be in control of it. It's also issues like gender. We know, for example, that women in India perhaps face much greater psychological distress. When you look at the suicide rates, Recently, we've just had the World Suicide Prevention Day. It's an important time to kind of ponder on suicidality. And we know that there are about 7 to 8 lakh people across the world who die from suicide. And we know that so many issues related to gender inequality, financial difficulties, domestic violence, multiple roles that women have to take up. Many of these are important gender based issues that might be responsible for different kinds of psychological distress among women. We also know that in minority and marginalized communities, psychological distress is likely to be more. We know that poverty is also a driver of psychological distress. So there are many social elements, cultural elements that we also need to take into consideration along with the individual and in, in, uh, determinants, but also the social determinants. That e even if you have a lot of distress, if you have good social support, you're likely to be better able to handle that distress and come out of it. Mm 
more resilient than if you don't so i think this interconnectedness between the various things becomes very important and we need to look at how different sectors can kind of contribute to this better well-being of people i was recently watching this netflix documentary they talk about how you live to 100 and what they call the blue zones that have shown high longevity and it was interesting that uh, of course diet and meals are a part of it but what they really cover is community connectedness and various cultural forms of integrating connectedness into the way people live and also the ikigai which is a sense of purpose which really goes back to what you said that taking a full view of our lives is critical for us to solve for it but i want to come to the question that i had which is as you highlighted uh, you know the problems that children face adolescents face adults face etc it's very clear that the kind of challenges people face which impact their mental health are different at different life stages i am a father of a 13 year old son and i just dropped him today morning to school and his deep anxiety that one of his teachers reprimanded him in class is his biggest problem in life and you know from my perspective i'm thinking about it and going one teacher in eighth grade doesn't make any difference but for him at this point it's probably the most important aspect of his life so one question i had for you dr murthy is knowing what we know now about this how do we design health interventions in a way that is context specific and life cycle specific and have you been able to see some good practices of how this is done and that will be great to hear as well so i have two responses to what you said the first thing you talked about is collectivism and i think one of the wonderful things about eastern societies has been i am because we are and i think in general the focus in our societies have been a more collectivistic we kind of situation whereas you know over time that has shifted to an i and me and mine and therefore i think it is very important to consciously think about how it is that we can develop this sense of a collective consciousness because then i think that the drivers of such things are compassion concern for others making sure that i don't grow at somebody else's expense you know that we don't create that kind of an individual competitiveness with others but really focus on one's own ability to grow and thrive in a community the second thing that you mentioned is i think we've always made the error of possibly believing that there is one size fits all as far as interventions are concerned and therefore you know just tweaking something for a child or you know making something a little different so i think we need to understand the needs along a developmental continuum or the needs of different groups of people and make our responses important for those needs i mean typically the example that you mentioned about your 13 year old son you know what am i going to tell him what you know if he's anxious about that i'm going to obviously one of the things i would do is to really prepare him to be able to handle his day to day you know issues in class i'm also going to tell him that hey if you do get reprimanded it's not the end of the world because you know that's the most important problem for him and and the point you made around how should hence i as a parent respond to a child in the child specific context one i often ask myself dr murthy how do we design population scale interventions uh, that address some of these things because i think the challenge in some sense is 
it's uh, population scale interventions largely are top down hence a lot of miss a lot of nuances uh, and don't take into account the context effectively and one of the ideas has always been to say how do we integrate the conversation of mental wellness into the institutions where the child is part of so that is age appropriate for example so how do we do it in schools or how do we do it in workplaces for adults colleges and so on have you actually seen best practices maybe in india or abroad where some of these things have been done well so i think there are occasional examples from different places because with population based strategies there are some simple things like for example you might introduce yoga in schools which is an important strategy to kind of make sure that all kids have some basic way of looking after themselves developing some degree of confidence and calmness in themselves but it's also important as a systemic kind of approach to recognize where you have kids with difficulties perhaps even knowing when they come into school what is happening in their homes engaging parents much more because parents are also in a hugely difficult situation because you know with the changing world their ways the ways they were brought up may not necessarily be the only ways which work for children so really that kind of adaptation to see how best they can provide things parents are often very stressed because both father and mother are out at work we do not have a support system which existed earlier you know i can i always talk about the wonderful support system i've had in terms of both the grandparents on the maternal and paternal side being available to my children and therefore allowing me to be able to go and do the work that i can everybody doesn't have the luxury to do that and sometimes even if they have this structure in place they don't foster this and they don't kind of enrich it enough because of interpersonal difficulties they don't take the advantage of situations like that so i always talk about needing to grow your roots to make sure you develop a lot of social connectedness you enrich those networks so that when you're in difficulty you have a good network of family and friends to help you to deal with the kind of difficulties that you might have so therefore parents need help teachers need to be empowered not just to teach but to be good communicators with the students and of course be good mentors and role models for students because a lot of that kind of idealization actually occurs in school It doesn't occur so much at home but it definitely occurs in school so i think being able to be available for them also having some facilities where either the teachers or counselors can actually be available to identify kids who have some difficulties and help them along so that if these things are caught early they can be something that can be done remedially to make sure that the child manages to deal with a difficult situation so i think these are all for example systemic changes that can occur in school now at a larger population level we have a huge treatment gap when it comes to disorders we talk about treatment gaps upwards of 75% to as much as 90% so people a need to be aware that they have a problem that they need to seek help but if they are aware and seek want to seek help and there is no help available that's a very difficult situation and therefore making help available is also very critical now we do know that help is available usually in clinical care settings and that's not something that everybody may have access to and therefore you need to move help beyond institutional setting 
into community settings so that people know where to go. Now, if people are from very remote, underserved areas, even getting to a primary health care facility or getting to a health care provider might be very difficult. And therefore, we, the country has introduced something called telemanus, you know, you, where you call 14416. In most states and union territories, it's now available. So that, uh, And one of the commonest things that people called in for, there have been 3 lakh calls in the last 10 months. And one of the most important things people called was for sleep disturbance. What do I do? There are simple strategies that we can do to make sure people sleep better because sleep is very restorative and regenerative. Similarly, a low mood, a relationship problem. Now, ideally, we also need to make sure that we have sub informal support networks around us. I mean, everything does not need to go to a professional. We need to have those informal networks. But equally enough, when there are severe problems, it's very important not to delay access to care. So really that understanding in a community, having a set of different kind of help arrangements to both provide informal help, also provide uh, professional help if necessary, but equally inpatient care, medication, emergency help, particularly for people with severe mental disorders, which can be a huge crisis. Somebody feeling suicidal, somebody becoming psychotic, somebody being uh, violent. These are all very important to think. In fact, it's not just the people who are in these difficult circumstances who need help. A lot of the families are at a loose end. In fact, last week, we had a program for families who have had to deal with death by suicide in their near and dear ones. We don't have mechanisms actually to support people like this because it can be devastating. Similarly, parents of children who have serious difficulties, uh, family members of people who have to deal with uh, very severe illnesses like cancer, other chronic diseases, we need to develop support systems for them. And I think these are all the gaps that we have. We are looking at the acute treatment of people, but we must remember that there's a lot in terms of prevention, in terms of early intervention, and of course, in rehabilitation and aftercare, particularly for people with severe mental illnesses, so that they can be reintegrated to the extent possible in society, which means financial assistance, which means jobs, which means compensation for time people spend taking care of persons with special needs which means rehabilitation facilities to help them to recover to the extent possible. So I think looking from a policy point of view, all of these need attention. And we're doing, we're taking baby steps towards that. But I think a whole of society approach and an intersectoral approach is what is going to be very important to be able to achieve this in any meaningful manner. Thank you, Dr. Murthy. And, uh... Coming back to the life cycle aspect we mentioned earlier, one of the things I wanted to ask you was also not just by age, but there are specific life situations that we know are very stressful. For example, pregnancy and the entire early stage of a child. And you mentioned right in the beginning how that has a crucial impact on the child's mental well-being itself. And the second has been jails, for example. And you've talked about right in the beginning around substance abuse. Again, it'll be great to hear from you in not just in context like school and workplace, but context like these which are life stages where the stress of uh, mental health, the mental well-being is actually at risk. 
how do we look at models of integrating mental well-being effectively in some some of these cases i think that'll be great to hear as well as i mentioned earlier you know this life developmental life cycle approach is very critical so when you talk about a mother and child when you talk about pregnancy we talk about perinatal mental health services so just for example as you'd go for antenatal checkups for looking at how the baby is physically growing in the womb just like you have ultrasounds it's also very important to make sure that there is good mental health care of the mother which starts from good diet which talks about sleep hygiene which talks about preparing for the child coming in which means support at soon after childbirth which also means safe childbirths because we know if childbirths are not safe and there are minor injuries to the brain they can be a lifelong disability to the child uh, it also means making sure that the early development of the child is also taken care of so one thing that we have developed for example at nimans is a perinatal mental health facility we also know that post partum depression postpartum psychotic disorders are also well recognized conditions so we need to make sure that families don't dismiss them as some kind of a black magic or you know something like that that occurs but these are actually clinical conditions that need treatment as well as further management so for example women who have these problems are not just treated for the disorder but are also supported in how to take care of the child the families are spoken to that's very important the other thing that has happened in karnataka is the matruchaya program which looks at integrating mental health along with uh, physical health so that you know this program is made available to women the thai bhagya scheme is another additional entry where mental health evaluations are also carried out so these are excellent models which can be used in other states as well to make sure that mental health components are addressed along with physical components and i know both in the case of children and schools there has been a growing recognition about the issue of stress we've been reading about the quota suicides and there has been a growing awareness on happiness curriculum for example mental health related support both for parents and for children across states is that something that you're seeing as well and are there some good examples that you can highlight more than a couple of decades back the world health organization talked about life skill education in schools so many schools have incorporated aspects of the life skills education in their programs uh, many schools in fact there is a mandate actually that every school should have counseling facilities for children that's another thing that can be done the third thing is what teachers themselves can do to make sure that the curriculum extends to some of these elements of skill building in terms of their emotional skills in terms of developing self confidence amongst the children in terms of improving communication particularly at the emotional level so i think many of the strategies are being implemented in schools just recently i was reading about uh, the children taking an oath that they will look after themselves that they will be kinder to themselves and it's okay to reach out to some to an adult for help when they need to so there are these kind of strategies but i think perhaps a structured program which looks at and we were talking about an integrated approach to learning so as more structured programs which also focus on developing well-being and resilience and a community sense of purpose 
you mentioned that to have a purpose i think those are going to be critical in fact uh, there is in the at the national level too rbsk program where certainly the components of mental health and well being have also been integrated along with the other programs but we need to see the impact of this and then we'll be able to scale up components of this much better so there are initiatives that are occurring both at a local level and at a national level which can be further strengthened early childhood experiences can also influence the way we think behave and feel so for example there is enough research to suggest that if you have a lot of adverse childhood experiences you are from a broken home you witness a lot of domestic violence you yourself are exposed to a lot of deprivation or abuse in any fashion that can change the way we think and feel as adults so one of the critical interventions is to ensure that people have childhoods where the children are properly looked after not just from their physical needs but their mental health needs as well which means learning to teach the child self confidence acceptance learning to teach the child how to be resilient when there are disappointments how to overcome such issues how to communicate well including how to communicate distress and accept that at times you can't be on top of everything how to cope with academic pressures how to cope with peer pressures and this is particularly important for children who might have these difficult biological temperaments i mean for example birth injury we know that minor birth injury can produce changes in temperament that we we talk about neurodiversity that everybody is not alike that some children may have some intellectual difficulties learning disabilities emotional dysregulation so if we know how to handle these children well so that they are able to overcome such problems to, to an extent and that they learn to develop self esteem and self confidence that translates into handling whatever disadvantages they have and being able to grow up so similarly i think especially during adolescence we know that children go through a lot of changes it's not just physiological change it's also tremendous psychological changes that it's a reality at school for example that some kids are very confident some kids are very shy some kids are bullied in school and all of these can also have repercussions we place a huge amount of emphasis on academic development but we equally need to foster the overall development of children which includes developing life skills like good communication how to be assertive to have some degree of control over one's emotional regulation and so on how to interact with peers how to make decisions for example with substance use which is a common thing and that's an area of my interest and very often it's when children aren't able to do this kind of critical thinking that they're likely if they also have temperamental difficulties and don't have critical thinking and good judgment they are more likely to turn to this kind of activity for enjoyment for relaxation and so on so as young people and adolescents we also need to make sure people have avenues to relax you know what is it that gives them a buzz which is safe for them but those are all very critically important and in fact another very critical thing in children and adolescents is to develop a sense of community is to foster a social connectedness we don't focus on our young people as important social capital 
for tomorrow's well-being of the nation and therefore investing in young children in terms of making sure that their all-round development is done along with of course their own professional growth for the future that becomes very important so that's an important strategy that all of us need to focus on now i earlier mentioned to you about the developmental perspective and how we need to look at interests and the needs of people across the lifespan so similarly young adults especially young adults who get into work they have to balance a whole lot of things i mean it starts off with expectations from themselves from their parents from society their financial security how they get on in the workplace what are the norms that people judge them on nowadays we know the important pressures that social media now exerts on people in terms of their own expectations so young adults are also you know juggling around a lot of things particularly at the workplace so for example having good workplace interventions which fosters a place where you can actually not just do your work but enjoy the work that you do so that you contribute to the well-being of the workplace but at the same time there is an emphasis on personal growth so that becomes very important for young people it's during this productive period that it also becomes very important to focus on diet in fact things like diet and exercise is something that we should begin to inculcate right from the beginning maybe some kind of mindfulness mindfulness of course has become quite a jargon in today's age but mindfulness basically means a sense of awareness of yourself about your environment and so on so that becomes very critical good sleep i mean it's amazing how little attention we give to the quality of sleep and the restorative capacities of sleep and this is particularly important for students and young adults who might have pressures at you know in their studies and at work to make sure that that's regulated well and of course resilience how do you build up yourself because you know all of us know that life is not one smooth ride it's a it's pretty much a roller coaster and therefore the ability to kind of be able to manage both the highs and lows of life is something that we need to also inculcate of course as we grow older there are other problems there are so many other issues as well it's not just age that determines what we are and how we feel and how what we kind of do maybe at a more you know structural level we perhaps need to look at our educational system and just see what kind of burden we place on children you know while making them responsible and be able to you know meet challenges of today's world we also need to make sure that the environment we teach children in helps them motivates them and makes them excited about learning rather than make them fearful about the consequences of not performing it also means that the expectations we have from our children needs to be congruent with their abilities and their strengths rather than again one size fits all i spoke about neurodiversity earlier so i think recognizing the abilities of different people as being different and channelizing those abilities so i mean one of the things we've always done is solely focused only on academic kind of pathways we now know that some children are more artistic some children are more inclined to physical sports how do we then recognize that and you know develop those things so that the kids can thrive in 
those spheres, in addition, of course, to meeting the needs in terms of employability and so on, or do they have careers that can be developed in their own area spheres of interest? I think these are all questions that we need to ask ourselves at a larger level. The growing stress in workplace environments continue to be rising and you know there are so many stories we hear about 40 year olds, 42 year olds across various industries you know having uh, breakdowns to a point of death uh, which is related directly to the level of stress they are facing at work. How do you see us integrating uh, mental health into the context of workplace as well? So just as I mentioned with younger people, adults in the workplaces are Problems can emerge out of their own individual characteristics, work-related characteristics, and the environment of the world of work. I worked a lot with the international labor organizations, and one phrase really is stuck with me, that it's very rare that a worker leaves the problems of home behind when the worker enters the factory gate. So I think even though one is at work, there are lots of complexities which might be stress related to the workplace and the working conditions and the nature of work, as also the kind of problems and baggages that the person might be having in the community. So I think when you look at workplace interventions, you need to address all of these. You need to look at the characteristics of work, what kind of work the person is doing. So for example, workplaces which involve constant engagement with the public can be extremely stressful, especially when there are, you know, when there are members of the public demanding certain things be fulfilled and there's a single person there doing all that kind of work. Similarly, very monotonous work can lead to a complete loss of motivation and energy. Having too much work, which is very, very quick paced without having control on it, can also be extremely stressful. So I think one needs to constantly look at the workplace, and see how best the workplace can be conducive to making sure that the person gives their best and, of course, is not undergoing severe psychological distress. Equally so, as I mentioned, if the person happens to develop a mental illness or is under tremendous pressure, and very often the pressures are related to having take, to take care of young children at work, elderly at work, so facilities like creches, are all important, simple things that workplaces can also develop. And thirdly, of course, workplaces also need to develop a confidential counseling for people. Several workplaces, particularly in the corporate sector, have developed employee assistance programs, whether it's for mental illness, for substance use, etc., where they provide confidential counseling or referral to other places. So having a network of places to refer to. When the employee returns to work, making sure that they're reintegrated that you know, some attention is paid to the kind of jobs that they need to be kind of eased into. These are some of the elements of employee assistance and what workplaces can do. Now, the challenges come to unorganized workplaces, and that's something I'm always concerned about. Let's take taxi drivers and auto drivers and people who run other kinds of public transportation, people who work in very, very small settings. Unfortunately, we don't have enough schemes to do that. So I think we need to look at worker organizations to make sure that they incorporate also elements of mental health and well-being into their programs. There are lots of training programs that do occur for workers 
in different sectors and we need to make sure that we integrate this component. There are a few organizations which are doing that, but again, I think that needs to be scaled up. You mentioned jails. Now, jails are again are a very location where there can be significant mental health problems, substance use problems, and so on. When we did a study in the Karnataka prison, we found that all more than 60%, more than two-thirds of the prisoners, both under trials and convicts, had some form of mental disorder or substance use. And that might be responses, reactions to coming into prison, particularly among under trials who have not been there before, uh, developing substance use in the prison because there was so much loneliness and despair and anxiety, developing new mental health problems within the prison system. So many of these things need attention. So what does that mean in a prison system? That in addition to doing a physical evaluation at the time of entry into a prison, the person is evaluated in terms of their mental state. There is a regular intervention that occurs to make sure that nobody decompensates while in prison, that they're given some degree of psychological support. This is not just for people who come into prison as under trials, but also as convicts. Because what happens is a culture of maybe violence or unkindness or disregard for others, which actually develops if the system does not pay attention to that. Equally, along with the prisoners, the staff themselves are a tremendous stress. And therefore, you need to have programs which address the staff stress, teach them how to be able to deal with the prisoners in a less traumatic manner so that finally the environment is better for the prisoners as well as for the staff. One of the things that we commonly say in prisons is that the under trial comes with one crime, which may be even a petty crime, but then might go out as a hardened criminal. If you don't want to do that, you need to make sure that you have these preventive programs in prison, drug abuse in prison. It's possible that a person who comes with a history of drug abuse who is not recognized at the time of entry into prison may actually have a very severe withdrawal. If it's a severe alcohol-related withdrawal, the person may have seizures, may have deaths. So it's not good for the prison system not to be able to identify these problems and to have corrective action. So it makes a whole lot of sense. One of the things that we realized when working in prisons is that at the time of discharge, from the prison or released from the prison, if you don't prepare the prisoner to go back into the community life, there are so many problems, right from financial difficulties to access to medication if they had a you know, significant mental health problem. I remember the very poignant case in which a prisoner begged the prison authorities to let him back into the prison because he had no food outside and no access to medication. Therefore, that continuum of care, that intersectoral collaboration that I spoke of, because we all know that even if you have distress, it's not just access to treatment that becomes important. It is also how you live, where you live, what kind of work will you have, what kind of stigma do you need to deal with, what kind of continuum of care will you have. So all of these need to pay attention. There are small projects here and there which are looking at these, but I think we need to do a scale-up and make sure that these are available throughout the country. This is very, very helpful, uh, Dr. Murthy. And one of the things I wanted to understand is, are there specific states where this has already been done effectively? And it'd be great to see how it has been actually implemented and what have been some of the results. 
Yeah, I think there are examples of how effectively you can carry out these. For example, in Karnataka, having a psychiatrist service available in every prison, offering counseling and psychotherapy is something that's being done. In Punjab, handling drug abuse in the different prisons is something that's being carried out. In Tamil Nadu, for example, all the police personnel are being trained by NIMHANS to not only take care of their own personal stress, but to be able to support one another. These are not just looking after prisoners, but you know, in the general police force, we are aware that there is so much stress and strain. There have been courses. And in fact, that's been extended now into a certification course where the, some of the police personnel themselves are certified counsellors so that they can then expand this to other places. And, uh, you know, the similar things, like Punjab, Sikkim, Delhi, these are some places where such experiences are there. I'm sure there are more such experiences, but this is a start to tell you that we need to think about it in a systematic, structured manner to be able to provide such counselling and care in prison settings. I think there is a growing recognition around, um, you know, elderly as well. And I think there is increasingly going to be the number of elderly in India going to go up. And there is today both an opportunity conversation around how can we engage them better and a risk conversation, what do we have to take care of? How does mental well-being play in the context of uh, elderly? And also, are there examples of good ideas and solutions that you see getting implemented? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, we must commend the NGO sector for starting a lot of initiatives with the elderly. And one example is day, daycare for the elderly. So that when people go out to work, they are reasonably sure that elders have an environment where they can go to, be safe and be productive. I mean, I think we forget that, you know, unless the person is so severely incapacitated, just age is not a determinant of not being able to be, thrive and be productive. So I think that's one very important thing that we see happening. And Bangalore, for example, Nightingales is a very good example of such an initiative that was taken to for daycare for the elderly. I know they've started off a similar one for the elderly from marginalized communities. So I think that's a great initiative. Similarly, we heard about the Ratan Tata initiative where young people kind of got involved in doing little chores for the elderly, you know, spending time with the elderly, reading to the elderly. And I think that's a fantastic model where young people can get involved. And therefore, in that sense, they also become aware and more compassionate towards the elderly. Of course, there are other facilities that the elderly need, particularly in dementia, where they may need support. So, for example, training people to provide compassionate support to the elderly in their homes. There are initiatives to do that as well. And of course, finally, I mean, the conventional model of having more residential care centers. I've seen the concept of dementia villages, Taiwan and other places. And while they may be okay, I think I still think we should have good models where the elderly can be taken care at home home if possible, with some support being provided so that they are in the context of their homes. But maybe, you know, concepts like daycare where they can go out and socialize, but at the same time, have the comfort of being with family members. So I think we constantly need to explore uh, such programs uh, that we can take forward and strengthen. I don't think it's very easy to find 
faults with one particular program. But I think every kind of program has its strengths and limitations. And therefore, we need to look at a continuum of services, uh, particularly for the elderly, as their social supports begin to dwindle. And I think that becomes a responsibility of both government as well as non-government players. And one of the points you mentioned earlier, Dr. Murthy, which I thought was very important is how do we make care as easily accessible as possible and how do we bring care to the community? I remember Gandhi once talked about this ever-widening circles of compassion. How do you look at the family first and the community and then the facilities, etc. And the telemanas as a telehealth facility is a great example. Do you also see interesting examples where mental health support has been integrated into the fabric of the community today, maybe by government, maybe by other organizations as well. Are there some good examples that you're seeing of that? So there are several NGOs who are working throughout the country. There are these kind of sporadic activities that occur in different groups. So I remember a group of young people who had had experiences with attempting to take their lives, who actually came together and had a discussion on what circumstances led to that and how they were very grateful that you know this had not resulted in anything you know more morbid and how they had been able to pull themselves together and then make successes of themselves so that's a very powerful statement i remember for tobacco cessation one of the very powerful things is to have tobacco survivors who've had cancer and who had a tracheostomy come and talk about the you know the hazards of tobacco smoking that's on the one hand on the other hand, you have people with lived experience who talk about the kind of difficulties they've gone through and how they've been able to come around. That can be another very good example. The third can be having role models who come and talk. I mean, a typical example is Deepika Padukone, who through her Love Life, Live Love Foundation has been able to publicize that you can talk about depression in a non-stigmatizing manner and get help. So there are several such organizations, particularly NGOs in the community, who are working in the mental health space. Equally so, especially after the COVID pandemic, everybody seems to have got onto the bandwagon. And you have so many apps, you have so many you know, helplines, etc. And that also, while it's welcome to have more facilities, that raises the concern of making sure that people who are appropriately trained and capacitated to provide these services, that must be, that's a very important thing, and that people must not be exploited for commercial reasons. So that raises the issue of making sure that we have adequate, credible sources in the community and some form of accreditation so that we make sure that anybody anywhere must get quality help in a supportive and non-exploitative manner. So that's a challenge ahead for many of us. You spoke about community interventions. Now, many of these community interventions have been around empowering people, particularly, I'll take the example of women. So there have been a lot of women's groups which have empowered women around livelihood, around economics, about childcare, and they also integrate components of mental health and well-being and how the women can look after it. There are one-stop counseling centers which address women uh, who have been victims of domestic violence so that they can go to and help. Many police stations have such rescue lines or helplines 
or facilities where women can go and make complaints, particularly about domestic violence. So these are very good examples of what can actually be scaled up so that anybody anywhere knows that these facilities exist in the community and I can turn to one of these for help. Again, coming back to the population scale framing, as I listen to a lot of what you're saying, it goes back to how do we design our cities? How do we design our communities? How do we design our schools? How do we look at our children holistically? And uh, we have a public system where all of these responsibilities are divided. The same child for a health practitioner is different from an education practitioner to somebody who looks at protection versus a city is today in the hands of a lot of administrators. Is there ways in which we can achieve a greater convergence across some of these departments while keeping them administratively, of course, specifically focused on uh, the areas that they should focus on? We teach our children that they must learn to communicate better. But our biggest barriers are the communication barriers. And this is true of public health policy, administrators, the way we run programs, perhaps even true of doctors and other medical professionals. So I think it's very important to understand that when we talk about care, it is not just limited to health care, but there are several other pillars of support that we need to develop in the community. You talked about cities. So I think now there is a lot of attention to safe cities. There's a lot of attention to having a green environment because we know that, you know, being in nature, having trees and plants around you, having flowing water can all be very soothing. Not just there are studies in the elderly which have suggested that having these actually improves a person's sense and well-being. I know recently that there was a lot of concern about the elderly, for example, wandering away from home and getting lost. Who is responsible for them? So in starting with safe cities, smart cities, cities which make sure that the environment is conducive, having more playgrounds for children to play in so that they're not always confined at home and not looking at digital devices all the time for entertainment. Remember that playgrounds not only are an important thing from physical activity, it's also to develop social connectedness, a sense of togetherness, team building, etc. So I think we're looking at those kind of macro changes in cities. I know that there is, for example, another attempt to try and make cities smoke-free. How do you come together to make cities tobacco smoke-free so that younger people are not exposed to that? There are some valuable lessons we know that through policy and through uh, legislation, we've actually brought down tobacco use in this country by 7%. This is by the COTPA, the Cigarettes and Other Tobacco Products Act. But again, legislation without public engagement and awareness doesn't work. And how do we do that? We do that by teaching people to look after their mental health, to make sure that they don't get into situations where they can compromise their mental health and well-being. And as we spoke, also reducing stigma around these areas and making sure that services are available. I don't think we can just wish all these problems away. I think there will always be situations where there will be people who can't always you know, rely on self-help or rely immediately on their family members and uh, their uh, social circles. So I think it's important to really understand the whole of community and see, look at the needs of the whole of community. And obviously, 
government alone cannot manage the entire problem given the complexity of the problem, given the magnitude of the problem, given the population of our country. And therefore, having a stepped approach to care, having multiple partners being available, improving communication, figuring out the roles and responsibilities of each of us, having platforms to really discuss some of these issues so that there is an understanding and appreciation of what each group is doing. But at the same time, we cannot afford to duplicate the services because our resources are meager. So how then do we have partnerships and collaborations to address different aspects of these? Maybe it's public-private partnerships, maybe government NGO working together. I think that's the only way as a whole of society approach that we can deal with these problems, which are in some ways complex, but if they are broken down into elements which promote care and resilience, elements which reduce stigma, elements which provide better information, better and accurate information to people, and elements of early intervention and care, elements of rehabilitation and reintegration, then perhaps we can really look at a true whole-of-society approach that helps us to improve well-being and reduce the burden of care. We should not forget our existing cultural mechanisms, which actually have been fairly strong pillars. Of course, it would be wrong to say that everything that has been existing as a society is always very good. But I think there are strengths, for example, in family bonding, in family togetherness. That's very important. As I mentioned earlier, systems like yoga, etc., can be very important to kind of build our resilience and our things. So I think we need to look at both existing systems of care and perhaps newer ways and newer and innovative ways, especially using technology to reach out to people in a meaningful manner so that we can make sure that even in remote and unreached parts of our country, we can make sure that some degree of mental health promotion as well as prevention of disease and treatment of disease is ensured. One of the things that we have always believed to be our strengths is spirituality. And I think, again, along with one's developing one's resilience, one's ability to help oneself, there are lots of people who do benefit from spirituality. And I think that's, again, a strength that we can build upon at an individual level, maybe at a collective community level towards helping one's own mental health and well-being. Throughout this conversation, you've given us such a broad canvas and highlighted many areas where we need to focus to be able to look at this problem holistically. One, of course, is how do we look at institutions that people are part of today and integrate a certain holistic thinking of well-being there. As we were talking, you talked about better ways of making access and help available for people. You talked about ensuring accreditation, for example, so that people are not, uh, you know, uh, manipulated or uh, genuine concerns are not getting addressed. If you step back and sort of look at the, let's say, the public policy landscape and philanthropy landscape, what are your top recommendations, Dr. Murthy, on what, on priority, we should be focusing on right now? I mean, I think it's been wonderful to see philanthropy step in, in a big way. And I'm seeing that there has been a growing interest in mental health. I think one of the things, of course, is simply as a 
prevention principle. I mean, I, I'd love to use the ILO example of a traffic light. You have the green, the amber, and the red zones. Traditionally, we have focused on the red zone, which is really dealing with people who have established problems. But that's a necessity. And therefore, even in our country, this, the gap for the treatment of persons with severe mental disorder like schizophrenia and bipolar mood disorders and so on is very, very high. The burden of these disorders, even though the prevalence may be low, is also very high. So I think we need to make sure that we have facilities for them, particularly, as I mentioned, in terms of rehabilitation and reintegration, that there, are, there, are, there is a growing support for such initiatives both from the government as well as the philanthropic sector. So that's very important. The second and most important thing, I think, is to make sure that people with certain vulnerabilities, those vulnerabilities are taken care of and expanded. So perhaps identifying high-risk individuals, people from marginalized groups, the people in settings where there, are, there is higher mental morbidity, I think having interventions there is very important. The third and most important thing is reducing stigma. And particularly for many mental disorders, as I started off this conversation, I mentioned that biology is also a very critical element. So we know that there are brain changes in any kind of mental health disorder. So understanding in some ways mental health disorders like we do physical disorders is going to be very important. And I think that kind of awareness and education to tell people that their minds are no different in some ways than the rest of their bodies so that there is a sense of ownership, if you will, being able to be more open about it, taking help becomes very important. And finally, the green zone is really about keeping the greens green. Many of us, most of the times, enjoy good mental health, but how can we make sure we look after it, particularly among young people whose future is there ahead of them, to make sure that they grow up with a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, a sense of self-confidence, so that they can be important social capital for the future. So these are all the areas where I can see that we need to work with our institutions, with our schools and colleges, with other establishments, with government, with NGOs, and of course, with support in partnership and collaboration from philanthropy, I think we can make a huge change in this whole dialogue which looks at mental health on a spectrum from well-being to recovery from illness. Dr. Muthi, I think you've summarized it extremely well, so I don't want to add to, to that. It was a fascinating conversation and for me, I think the enduring feeling I leave back with is really, how do you live a good life? And I think rather than asking ourselves, how do we have good mental health? I think the question of how do we live a good life how do we stay connected to other people? How do we build better social networks? How do we build resilience? How do we accept the fact that life is going to be a combination of ups and downs rather than one way? And then how do we build a system that takes care of, as you rightly highlighted, the red, amber, and the green, I think is going to be very, very important. Thank you so much for your time. I genuinely enjoyed our conversation. I'm sure everyone who's listening to it is coming out of it wiser. So thanks so much for your time again, madam. Thank you so much.
Thank you for joining us here on Decoding Impact. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode and the conversation with our expert. To learn more about Satwa Knowledge Institute and our evidence-based insights, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, and explore our content on our website, all linked in the description.